This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. And the last time we looked at why Jesus was our great high priest. And there's going to be a little bit of overlap in this morning's sermon. Uh, we talk about the Melchizedekian order of Jesus being greater of the human Aaronic order. And today we're going to look at a lot of things that are better. Actually, the title of today's message is Better is Always Better. No duh, right? But uh, it, it's, it's, we're going to look at a few things that are better. And I have to tell you, when I was 16 years old, believe it or not, I was 16 at one time, I worked at Burger King. I still remember making $3.35 an hour. But the perks were I really loved the food. And I worked with a guy, and they let us eat there. I don't know if that was a, a good idea or not. But I worked with a, another employee, and he used to tell me, you got to make yourself a better burger. So he would take the, the, the bread and throw one of the big Whopper patties on there and squirt it with mayonnaise and throw another one on and put pickles and, you know, uh, onion rings and fries and another patty and mayonnaise. And before you knew it, it was a really thick burger. And he would ask me to try it. And I, at 16 years old, man, that was heaven, you know. <laughs> I just would gobble that thing down. And I just still remember to this day, he would say, build a better burger. However, as you get older... Um, you know, building a better burger doesn't really do it for us. You know, we get older, we think about eternity, we think about our lives, we think about our frailties, we think about our mortality, and we need something better. And today we're going to speak about Jesus as the high priest, but you can't take the high priest and marry him to an old copy system. You've got to marry him to a better system. So we're going to find that the gifts and the sacrifice are better that the sanctuary and the tabernacle are better. And we're also going to find that the new covenant and its promises are also better. So we're going to jump in and check that out, starting with verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, and this is taken from the Old Testament, 20, Exodus 25, 40, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So verse 1, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. This is important. Seated is symbolic of the finished work on the cross. Jesus came not to do miracles, not to teach, although those things were awesome, came to die for our sins. And then when he was resurrected, he had his, his uh, post-resurrection ministry, and he ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. Now check this out. If you look at the, we're going to make a lot of comparisons, and for those of you who are not very familiar with the Bible, I'm going to try to do my best to explain, and really, if you weren't here the last few Sundays, you can get the messages for free on the website. It'll kind of bring you up to speed. A lot of this stuff happened in the Old Testament, and the New Testament is a revelation of the Old Testament. 
So you had in the Old Testament, you had the sanctuary, right? You had the tabernacle that later became the temple. You had the Holy of Holies. You had uh, the, all these different pieces of, of furniture that God had them set up. But you know what you didn't see? What didn't you see in that system? Not one chair, not one couch. Because they continuously had to work and work and work because people kept sinning and sinning and sinning and there needed to be atonement for that sin. However, Jesus did this once, wiped it all out. He finished it. So that anyone today, in the future, in the past, anyone who believes on Jesus and his completed sacrifice gets into heaven. It's that simple. You know, when I go to heaven, I don't have to bring a resume with me. I don't have to bring references. I don't have to beg God to let me in and say, you know, most of the people at Crossfields like me. Maybe there was a few that didn't, but I'm a likable guy. Lord, look at, look, look at my resume. Jesus paid the price. He finished that work on the cross. And the Bible tells us, too, that he takes this position of glory at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is something that he had before he came to the earth, before God incarnate, before the babe in the manger. He eternally existed, always had that position of glory. The only time he was humiliated was when he came to the earth to die for my sins and your sins. So we're looking at a bigger and better picture here in today's message. The perspective... Remember, the perspective is the Hebrew Christians, some of them because of persecution and other reasons, were tempted to shy away from Jesus and go back to the temple and stuff because Judaism was still popular and Christianity was being persecuted. So it drove them towards this old system. However, what they didn't know is in a few years from this letter, the Romans were going to come and destroy. You know, you know your history, the Roman-Jewish War of A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. I love the way history fits into what the scripture is saying here. I would say to you this morning, don't settle for a copy. Don't settle for anything less than the full blessings and promises that God has for you this morning. You may be used to a system, a religion, because my parents grew up and this is what I do and I don't know any better. Maybe you go somewhere where you're not being taught the word. You don't know about Jesus' free gift of salvation. Just like the Hebrew Christians shouldn't have settled, I would ask you this morning, don't settle as well. And you're going to see a lot that God is really an awesome father in this. I say to my son sometimes, I just want better for you. And God is saying the same thing to us. I just want better for you. And having a relationship with him, all the blessings start to open up, all the promises. Try it. Verse 2, there's a better sanctuary and a better tabernacle. Remember, in the, whether it was the tabernacle or the permanent building, the temple, there was a section called the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go into and only on certain times, and he had to bring a blood sacrifice and offering with him, and God's presence was in that Holy of Holies. Not any person couldn't just walk in there. They would have been struck down. You can't come to God in a sinful state. You just can't do it. And this is the Old Testament we're speaking about. And the Hebrew Christians might have been impressed by what was going on, not too long, not too far from where they lived in that Holy of Holies. But I'll tell you this, it was only a copy of the original. If you would, turn with me to Revelation 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, there's some of you this morning that uh, have told me that, hey, Pastor Joe, I'm going through your Revelation series in addition to Hebrews or, or what we covered before. 
fascinating book, The Revealing, The Apocalypsis, The Revealing of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of what the throne room of God looks like, the original. And again, it's only words on a page. When we get there, it's going to blow our doors off. You can't put the glory of God and describe it on a piece of paper and expect to have that full understanding. But we're going to be there one day if we're in Christ. Revelation 4, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a a door standing open in heaven. There's heaven. There's just a door right in the middle there. Okay, it's standing open. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Again, the disciple John is writing this. He's taking notes. He, he's, he's overwhelmed, mesmerized. And he describes it like a stone. Well, sometimes we can't describe things on this earth. But you ever see a a, a gem, a precious gem in all its glory, like a real big one that they have on display, that they have armed guards around, and when the light hits it, it's just beautiful. I mean, you're mesmerized by it. So think of what John is trying to describe to other human beings. And there was a rainbow around the throne. It appeared like an emerald. Emeralds are beautiful. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. That must, be, that must have been amazing to look at, huh? A sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst, you know, a lot of this revolves around light. The Bible says that God is light. He, he must be, you know, I've been dazzled by light shows before, but he just must be so dazzling with what he produces, how he emanates. Is anything on earth compared to this? I don't think so. And at the midst of the throne and all around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And I won't go any further, but I just want to give you a little taste of the original. A little, little taste of the original. God does not have to reveal himself, but he chooses to. He chooses to reveal himself to us. We're his children. He loves us. In verse 3, we're speaking about a better sacrifice that Jesus offered. So, of course, the better sanctuary and tabernacle is the original in heaven. The better sacrifice, remember, the Jews were impressed by this system set up on earth, and they should have been because it was a copy of things in heaven. But that's not where it ended. See, the Son of God came to offer his own body and to spill his own blood. And the Greek says to offer once and for all. That's how powerful it was. One shot. These priests were offering sacrifices day after day and year after year and decade after decade and century after century. Jesus comes once, offers his body on the cross. It is finished, he said. All done. That's why he's called our great high priest. You realize in human history there were two major collisions between our world and God touching us. One was in Genesis, and the other one was at the cross. The closest God ever came to man. And I got to tell you that I don't understand it. 
You know, in, in this world, we have so much pain and suffering, and you talk to people about Jesus, you talk to them about the eternal kingdom, you tell them that they don't have to take anything out of their pockets and give any money. You tell them that they don't have to really give any of their time. They just have to believe that Jesus died for their sins. And people in this world still reject it. I don't get it. But you know what? I did many times because there was other ungodly draws in my life when I was in my 20s, and it took a while for it to take in me. So I, I guess I do understand it a little bit. I want to just take a snippet from one news cycle. It was from yesterday, and these are the headlines. One news cycle. The IRS is now targeting small businesses. <laughs> we thought the IRS thing was over. It's not. Sad situation of another rape on campus. At least three missing, one dead after mudslide and flash floods hit Colorado. Six people swept away by hot lava in Indonesia. Well, good news. Four bodies pulled from Connecticut's small plane crash wreck. Possible U.S. ambassador, the target of Egyptian fury. Embassies closed down. Southern California wildfire grows to 27 square miles. 69 killed. These are, these are lives. These are people that aren't here anymore. Lives were taken from them. 69 killed in wave of bombings in Iraq. Well, San Diego mayor, we won't talk about him. He should just get out. Uh, underground ice wall in Japan, latest hope for stemming Fukushima leaks, the radiation. Sun to flip its magnetic field and all the problems that come with that. That was just the first page. Are you putting your hope in this world? I certainly hope not, because it would be foolish to do so. I don't care who's the president. I don't care who's the president of the EU. I don't care who's the president of the Federal Reserve. Man is not going to solve our problems. We look forward to the Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look forward to that day. And we move on. Verse, or verse 4, he speaks about a better genealogy. Well, we know that Jesus came from the line of Judah. And the priest came from the line of Levi. So we have a problem. How could Jesus be a priest? We saw in the last chapter that he did in the order of Melchizedek. And verse 5, he's saying that we better go with the original instead of the pattern. Now in 5, what I call 5b, if we look at this verse, it says, Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said... Again, this next part is quoted from Exodus 25, 40, saying to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses always knew that all the stuff that he made, the curtains, the thickness, this was like building a small block Chevy. I mean, he was saying to Moses that the curtains got to be this thick and the, the box, the mercy seat has to be, the, these are the dimensions and the cubits and this has to be overlaid with gold and that has to be fashioned in the shape of a, terib- a cherubim and don't forget the candelabra and these are how many, man, I mean there's a whole, this chapters upon what God said to Moses in meticulous detail of how to build this copy that was, don't make a mistake Moses because that represents who I am up there. Everything down here has a symbolism for me up in my sanctuary. So he, Moses always knew that there was an original. Now you've heard expressions maybe on this earth, a uh, little slice of heaven, heaven on earth. People who say that stuff have no idea. Nothing on this earth can compare to what's waiting for us in God's kingdom. Now, I want to read to you 1 Kings it's only two verses. First uh, Kings eight, ten, and eleven. 
you know, the ark returns, it returns to, um, you know, Israel and the, the, the temple is dedicated. And in verse 10, it says, and it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory. Shekinah meaning in Hebrew to, to be inhabited. God's inhabited glory. He actually said, God said, listen, buildings can't contain me. The heavens and the earth can't contain me. These are the things I created. I set them in motion. But for the sake of you, the sake of mankind, a part of me, part of my, is amazing. His physical presence was going to dwell in that temple, in that holy of holies. Really impressive. And when the, the priests were dedicating it, just the, the, the smoke of the Lord, this cloud, it just it, it overwhelmed the place and they just couldn't stand in there. They, they, I could just picture them all scampering out of the, the building to get some, some air. Now, it wasn't like cigarette smoke. It was the glory of the Lord. Who can explain it? This is how they explained it. Imagine the Jews living a few miles from the temple, sitting around the campfire and saying, in that building, I can see it. In that building, God's presence is there. He's protecting us. He's loving us. He's guiding us. And you know that people threw it away. They, they treat it as a common thing. And people do that again today. It says in verse 6 that the priests serve, or it says in 5, it's, it says that the priests serve uh, on the earth a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. I like to use relationship a lot when we talk about us and God because that's what he wants. He wants us. He wants our, our hearts. He wants our desire. He wants us to run to him when we have problems. Daddy, Abba, Father. You know, when you see a loved one, if they're standing just right and the sun is just right, you will run into their shadow before you run into them. And as they're putting their arms up or moving around, the shadow moves too. It, it really is, it's a sort of a part of them. It casts a shadow. And it, in real time, it moves with the person's articulation and their, their body's movements. But you know what? You can't have a relationship with the shadow. And this song, you hear the song, uh, shadow dancing or grasping at shadows. That's not what God wants for us. He wants us to have the real deal. He wants us to have the original. He wants a relationship with us. You want to know how powerful all this was? In Acts 6, 7, one verse, I just thought of it as I was putting my stuff together. This is afterwards, after the resurrection. It says, And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Do you realize the implications of this? Here's the priests in the Old Testament. See, this is a crash-collision course between the Old Covenant and, an, and the New Covenant. Acts was a very amazing time. Uh, I mean, a very exciting time as, as there was this great transition. And the priests, they would get up every day and they would minister and they would serve and they would take the offerings and sacrifice and present the blood to, to the Lord. These priests, and I could imagine some of them got, getting lifted up with pride. They had such a high position over the people. They heard the gospel, and they came to the faith. I could just see some of the priests just going, oh, there's no, no reason for me to get up for work tomorrow and do all that. Jesus did it. We're living in a dispensation where Jesus took care of all that. I don't need to do that anymore. I can rest. We talked about rest a few chapters back, remember? 
So we're going to take a look at this covenant, this collision between the old and the new, and see how they work together. And they do work together. Starting with verse 7, continuing on. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says. Now this chunk is taken out of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Going back. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, this is the blessing that the Jews were going to experience. He's speaking to the Jewish people, right, several hundred years B.C., about this new covenant, something very foreign to them. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So before we delve into this, we need to explain what a covenant is. What is a covenant, Pastor Joe? And I don't understand that. I'm not familiar with the Bible. Well, I went on dictionary.com, and there were two definitions. There's a few, but I took two of them out. The first one is an agreement between two or more persons or parties to do or not to do something. Second one is conditional promises made to humanity by God as revealed in scriptures. I looked at that, I'm like, wow, no sanitizing here. I like that. Synonyms for covenant. Treaty, pact, contract, testament. Hence, the Old and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, there's a branch in theology called covenant theology, where you study all the agreements all the, 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 between God and his people. So the first covenant was not faultless, otherwise a second one wouldn't have been prepared by God and instituted at his appointed time. Now, we need to be careful. The first covenant was not a mistake. It wasn't bad. Unfortunately, there are some Christian sects that refuse to teach the Old Testament, like we've, we're done away with Israel. We don't believe that at Calvary Chapel. The first covenant had a, 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 a purpose. And there's three things that I'm going to look, a, look at in this purpose, and it's mirror, mediator, and Messiah. Start with me, mirror. Just give you, everybody want to see how they look this morning? <laughs> you all look great, by the way. Is there anybody in this fellowship that when you got up this morning before you came to church, any person that did not look in the mirror, even pass by a mirror, anybody? See, nobody. It kind of proves my point. A mirror, when I get up in the morning, my hair, as it gets longer, it gets wild. I can't go to church like that. It's just weird. When I look in the mirror, it shows me that I don't look so good. And I can't actually take the mirror and rub it on my hair, and all of a sudden I'm better. A mirror is not designed to fix. It's only designed to reveal. It has a limited purpose. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Certainly not you at this time of the morning. (laughs) 
So the mirror points me to a position that I look at myself, I have an introspective look and I say, I have problems. Now in the law or the old covenant, that was also a mirror. And it showed the people, even though they tried so hard to keep the law, some of them didn't, that they could not keep the law. So what happens? The mirror moves to mediator. Even Job, when he was going through his afflictions in the book of Job, he cried out, well, who will stand in the gap between me and God? God must be angry at me. I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what I did. And he needed a mediator. He spoke about that mediator. Then we look at the Messiah. See, all these things were designed to bring us to the Messiah to show us that he's going to do the work for us. First covenant, it's a revelation of ourselves. The second covenant shows us how we can be fixed. Now, there were many covenants in the scripture. God had covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, etc. Let me just go back to Abraham for a minute because I'm going to make a dichotomy between that covenant and this covenant um, with Moses. A lot of the agreements with Abraham were unconditional. Abraham, the Messiah is going to come through your line. Abraham, your people are going to be very numerous, like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. Abraham didn't have to do anything, didn't have to have his end of the bargain. God said, I will do these things. That's an unconditional uh, promise. Now, we also know that God, God had covenants, general covenants with his people. We see Mosaic covenant or Mosaic law embedded in that covenant and it was very expansive. God said, this is how you deal with a personal issues, personal sin. And there was another section, this is how you deal with societal issues. And then there was another section, this is how you deal with spiritual or ceremonial issues. Again, embedded in the law. They were conditional. They were if you do this, then I will do this. They were if-then statements. I want to read a few verses here too. In Exodus 19, you know, the law has been given out. God is explaining what he expects from the people. In Exodus 19, 5 through 8, I call this the honeymoon phase. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And you know the, you know the history. Obviously, they didn't. I do want to dispel the myth that God was an angry, vengeful, hateful God in the Old Testament. And, you know, you see on TV, everybody gets a makeover. You know, they get different makeovers, their hair, their dress, plastic surgery. And God didn't get a makeover before he went into the New Testament. He didn't call everybody together and say, you know what? My image isn't really good. I'm coming off really angry. I'm going to go to anger management. I'm going to get a makeover. Jesus is really nice. People will like him. I'm going to put him out there in the front. I'm going to kind of sit here in the back. No. God was always a loving God. This sin, these people went back on their promises day by day, year by year, decade by decade, century by century, and he didn't wipe them out. He brought them to a new covenant, a new agreement, which again is uh, predicated on his faithfulness and not on their faithfulness. 
verse 8. It says, finding fault with them. Not finding fault with God, but finding fault with the people. They needed to see that they couldn't do it, and they needed God. And brothers and sisters, this morning, are we any better than the children of Israel? No. We may act better at times, because if you're really saved, you have a part of God residing in you, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He helps us. He convicts us when we're wrong. He counsels us. He's there with us through thick and thin. But we can't do it on our own. I know that I can't do it on my own. I do a lot of things on my own. But I know that that I can't do this. There's not even a question about it. Not even a a foolishness for a moment thinking that I can do it without God. I can't do it. Verse 9 says, They did not continue in my covenant. They broke the agreement. And we know that in an agreement with two parties, if one party, even in our jurisprudence system today, civil law, If one party breaks the agreement, the other one is absolved of their responsibilities. So God, it says, I disregarded them. So what do we do now? Well, somebody we need a hero, don't we? We need a hero to save the day. And Jesus embodied that hero. He came in to save the day. He came in to save the day. And verses 8 through 12, like I said before, are taken from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in the Old Testament. And I want to give you a little bit of the background on Jeremiah and what he's prophesying. Uh, very respected uh, prophet to the Jewish people even today. Uh, it's a very long, it's one of the longer prophetic books. A lot of good stuff in Jeremiah. Even his character, when you really read about Jeremiah, what a sweetheart he was. You know, he really had empathy for the people. He really was like, almost like, you know, God was telling them to tell him about judgment and stuff. And they called him the weeping prophet because his heart broke for the things that were happening around him. Perfect person for God to use to give these prophetic utterances to. So Jeremiah prophesied to the Jewish people under the southern kingdom, Judah, prior to the Babylonian captivity and destruction of the temple and the temple system. He had a rough message for them, but he also gives them hope of future restoration geographically and spiritually. And that's the beauty of God. He has to convict us at times. You know, when we read the word, he can fix us. As believers, with the Holy Spirit, we do wrong. We get convicted when we read his word. The Holy Spirit lets us know you shouldn't be doing that. You're a Christian. You're, you're, you're an ambassador of Christ. You know, that's really not proper behavior. But at the same time, he comforts us and helps us to overcome. He helps us to go to God and repent. And he helps us to be restored. And he helps us to be used by God. That's awesome. Now, I'll just say this as well. Some, some may, may not understand how this works in this old to new transition. I know very few people in Alaska. But the ones I know tell me that because of the way it's situated on the, on the earth and the, and the axis of the earth and how it revolves around the sun, what happens is they have several months of darkness. Very depressing. You need flashlights, you need your car lights on, you need the lights on in your house because it's just constantly dark. However, when they get to a point where the earth is in a certain uh, trajectory and the, the the top axis is facing the sun, for those particular months, there's a lot of light. And I have to tell you, Alaskans really appreciate when it's light again. They love the sun, probably more than we do, because they're in the dark so long. Now, unfortunately, as people, and I'm there too, we're stubborn. Sometimes we have to see the deficit. We have to see the hard things before we can appreciate what God has to offer. 
That's why I have a problem with preachers who only preach good messages all the time. Oh, Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. Here, you need him. Well, if you don't know that you sin and you don't know that you're going to be damned and you don't know that there's judgment awaiting for you, who cares? Oh, yeah, Jesus was nice. Probably be a great guy to hang out with or have at a party, but I don't, I don't see my need for him. We have to see through the mirror that we're deficient so that we can see that we need Jesus and we love him all the more, right? Scripture reflects those that have been through a lot and have sinned a lot have a greater sometimes appreciation for the Lord because they realize what he's done for them and where they were headed. And I'm one of those people. I live more of my life as an unbeliever than as a believer. So I'm sold till my dying day. Now, a few points that we have to make regarding Jeremiah's prophecy in these verses is, number one, it points to this, this efflorescence of grace, this blossom, this flowering of grace that's going to come that the people were not familiar with at the time that he prophesied this. This was something that a human priest could not do for them. Priests could do a lot of things, but there were a lot of things that priests couldn't do. Better covenant, better promises. Number one, I'm going to look at four of them. Number one is national grace. For those of you that are into eschatology, and if you take the Bible college class, you'll hear some of this about what God's future is for Israel and how they're going to reemerge as prominent in the, in the end days, in the end times. But he speaks of them separately in verse 8, then he speaks of them united in verse 10. Remember, at the time that this prophecy was happening, there was a great division between the northern and southern kingdoms and at times they hated each other and wanted to go to war with each other. These were brothers. It's kind of like the Civil War in, in, the, in the United States, brother against brother. However, in May of 1948, Israel became a nation. We are living in exciting times. In addition, Scripture tells us that there will be a united uh, agreement among the Israelis and belief in Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12.10 uh, talks about a future fulfillment from our day. Peter Parkas, a Jewish preacher, you listen to the Jewish uh, preachers of today, they're really into this stuff and they can give you a lot of good insight. But for our insight today, what he was prophesying to them in addition was this message of salvation to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And they did hear it first. Now if you look at this, and I do this oftentimes in a linear fashion, he gave the Jews the message first. Jesus came from the Jewish line. The disciples were Jewish. Most of the early church was Jewish. So now we go from a timeline. From that point, somehow there was, there was this, well, God prophesied this Gentile inclusion. And for whatever reason, many of the Jews had rejected that messianic message. And a lot of Gentiles came into the fold. However, you keep going further on that timeline after the, the rapture or the harpazo of the saints, Israel becomes a dominant player again in the world stage. And there's this national repentance and, and moving towards Jesus as the Messiah. If you talk to anybody on the street today, and this is really endemic to American culture, you're either Jewish or you're Christian. Well, there's a really big world out there and we're a real small part of that really big wor world. And I call that, I've coined the phrase called Americentric glasses where even as American believers, we look at things in the scripture based on an American ideal. We can't do that because that's subjective and not objective. Right? We have to look at the scripture putting nationality aside. 
There are many Jewish believers around the world. There are many Jewish believers in this church. So I, I'm getting my car fixed, and uh, I'm, I'm in the waiting room, and I see a guy. He's retired now. He's a New Brunswick cop, and he inspired me to become a police officer. He really had a, a, an effect on my life in my early, earlier years. And he's a Jewish guy, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to witness to him. I haven't seen him in a long time. It's time. You know, we, we get along really well. So I start talking to him, and uh, he, I said, yeah, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. He goes, he goes, oh, I go to a Calvary Chapel in, in Pennsylvania. Calvary's a better, very Jewish friendly. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that was easy. <laughs> but it was kind of neat because, you know, uh, it, it, the whole con- I'm meeting, meeting more and more Jewish believers the more I go on in life. It's pretty, it's pretty nice. Now let's move to the, the, the last three before we close is uh, grace in as far as an individual, not a a national aspect. So the second one is, God says, I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. This is regeneration. In the old covenant, in the law, the law was written externally on stone tablets. God prophesied to the people, and this must have blown their minds. Wow, how's that going to happen? Remember, they don't have what we have. We have hindsight to look at. They were looking towards the future saying, this is, this is unreal, prophet. The new covenant of grace is internal. It's in the heart. It's in the mind. We have a new spiritual nature when we're regenerate. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, for a time. And it does appear that the Holy Spirit would come and go. But here, the Holy Spirit is indwelling in the believer. And I want to ask the question, and, and I think this is really a heart check. As believers, are we truly saved? Do we really love his law? It doesn't mean that it's a competition between me and you. I'm going to memorize three chapters today, and you're going to beat me with four. It's not a numbers game, but it's the desire to live by God's life. And I hear, I hear a lot of things through a lot of people. And I hear sometimes, you know... I'm going to go party on Friday on the weekend. I'm going to go get smashed. I'm going to get lit up. And if I make it to church, I make it to church. Really? Christian? Really? Do the things of God on a Saturday or a Sunday? Because truly, the true believer desires, like it says right here, to have God's word in their heart, to hold it in their heart, and to live by his word. The third point, God says, I will be their God and they my people None will have to teach others to know me because they will already know me. This is the prophecy of the relationship with God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit teaching us because we're indwelled by him. In our worst times as believers, God is our best counsel. He is our comforter. He is our friend. He is our supporter. He is in us. He is alongside of us. He comes upon us. I think sometimes we're so, we have to get out of that mindset of every time there's a problem, I go to a a social situation. I need people to fix me. I need a relationship. I've got to run to somebody to counsel me. God's like, I'm here all the time. If you're a believer, I'm always at your fingertips, right? Fourth and last one. He says, I will forgive unrighteousness. Remember their sin no more. This is full justification just as if I've never sinned, only possible by the blood of Jesus. There was no forgiveness under the law. There was only temporary atonement. 
The Lord just told you and showed you that you were a sinner. You brought your offering to the priest and it was a temporary atonement. And then you sinned again. And then you have to bring your offering again. I tell you what, sinning could be very expensive back in that old system. But you know, God is so good. Even for the poor person, the, um, the sacrifice was much less. So it was like on a sliding scale, so to speak. Uh, turtle doves instead of uh, goats and such. Does this mean that God, because he's been around so long, just gets forgetful? He forgot my sin. You know, I got one past him. I don't think he caught that one. It doesn't mean that. It means that he doesn't hold it against us. People do. You know, I often tell, especially young people, putting stuff on Facebook, I say, you know, your friends today can be somebody that holds that over you tomorrow. I don't judge you, but be careful what you put. Be careful all the stuff you put out there because people will use it against you. God never does that. We live in that age of grace, of dispensation of grace, where he, he shows us grace. He gives us things we don't deserve. Again, Jesus did all the heavy lifting for us. This is a great scripture to share with your Jewish friends because you say to them, you can just pick up one of their, I do, I've done this with my Jewish friends, pick up one of their authorized Jewish Old Testament Bibles, find Jeremiah 31, read these verses and say, well, this is the New Testament. What do you think this means? And you walk them through it. Wow, it sounds an awful lot like what you guys believe. Mm-hmm. They didn't teach me this in temple. Mm-hmm. So this is really a great scripture to, to share with them and ask them, what does this mean? Psalm 22, what does this mean? Isaiah 53, what does this mean? Verse 9, he says, I will take them by the hand and lead them out. Or he had taken them by the hand. This is very personal for God to say. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I have to tell you that my son, when he was a, a toddler and he was learning to walk, and he would put that little tiny hand in my big hand and I would close it and I would walk with him. As soon as I read this, I thought of that. I felt like the king of the world. I felt like a million dollars. I've got this little baby who looks up to me, this new life to protect him, to guide him, to lead him. And when that little face would look up at me, I mean, it just is, it's heaven. It's beautiful. But now, uh, when I get off late from work and I, I walk down our hallway, it's just so that his room is open and I see the foot of the bed. That little baby, when I walk down the hallway now, I see these really big feet hanging off of a bed. <laughs> and I say, who's that man in my son's room? <laughs> He's five foot ten, and oh, but I still relish those days. I still, you know, still have those pictures. Uh, it's a different relationship now. The picture of God as a harsh and cruel God, it's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. He takes the little instances of justice, which God has to be the God of justice, and he twists them. This is what liars do. They take something small, twist it out of context, and make it the moniker. They blow it up out of proportion. So I'm here to tell you that God still wants to be like our daddy. And in my deepest, darkest moments, when things are really too much for me, I just get alone with my Father in heaven and say, oh, Lord, you know the situation. And then I'll go through it like he didn't hear it or, or see it. 
and it makes me feel better. It's a catharsis. But that's where I go. That's where I run into that secret, private place. Don't look to man. Don't look to people. Don't look to relationships. We need to start relying on God because that's why He did this, this new covenant, so we could have that father and child relationship with Him. I'm going to end with a scripture uh, in Luke 5 37 through 39. Jesus does a teaching about the cloth and the wineskins. We're going to just end it with the wineskins. In Luke 5.37, Jesus says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins. When it ferments and it releases gases, it can't be in something that's brittle and, and can't flex. Otherwise, it'll just burst, it'll be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined, and you won't have any more wine. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. You can take any of the Lord's teachings and just say, wow, that's profound, you know, and just go through it. But the wine was a picture of the Holy Spirit. You can't contain the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is just, he's part of God. He's not less. You know, he's the most misunderstood person of the Godhead. The new, the new wine is also emblematic of grace and, and a, a different, a new covenant. And you know what? I've been talking a lot about Jesus, about how Jesus is the great high priest and there's gotta be, he has a better sacrifice and better covenants and better promises. But you know what? God wants to give you that new wine. He wants it to expand in your life. He wants it to overflow, and he wants you to be able to contain it. And the only way to do that is to become a new creature in Christ. Christ is better. His position is better. The promises are better. The covenant is better. Well, what about me? God cannot put his spirit into dead, necrotic flesh. That's why we have to be regenerated. We have to be born again of the Spirit. Otherwise, we cannot contain the new wineskins. So I want to encourage you this morning that take that example of the mirror. Look at any of these laws and see that you and I, even as a believer and a pastor, still fall short. See the truth of yourself and realize that you need a Savior and a mediator. You need that great high priest. There is a covenant here. There are promises for you. It's all there for the taking. And sometimes the only obstruction to us doing that is our own will, our own stubbornness, our own routine. And as we get older, it gets more difficult. I like routine. I don't like when God changes my routine. But I just want to encourage you. Let's not just look at what Jesus did. Let's look at ourselves and be willing to step up to the call to be those new wineskins. Let's pray. Father in heaven.